We're glad that you've joined us this morning, and I just want to take and highlight a couple of things before we engage in God's Word. The first is this, I do want to thank you for the generosity of you, God's people, toward James North Baptist Church. And just to highlight some of the things that God continues to do here, you've just seen the highlight of the children's ministry, the way that God uses some of the resources that you're granting here as you're faithful in your tithe and offerings to the Lord, and what that looks like in us being able to minister to children. But we're also able to do the same with youth, as Pastor Derek is working with youth online both Tuesday nights and Thursday nights. I know he's also been involved with visits where Mrs. Crosby's been bringing freezies, he's been bringing donuts. I don't know who's more favored between donuts and freezies. Um, But Derek's been doing that and been visiting with the youth, been teaching the youth, and and been engaging them both on Tuesdays and Thursdays. That's gone exceptionally well. And so we're so encouraged about that. We continue to work with our benevolent fund, and we've helped a number of people both internal to our congregation and in our surrounding community, connections that we have with a number of benevolent gifts, ways that we've been able to bless people through the pandemic as they've been struggling and trying to just make ends meet or maybe make rent, maybe make a utility payment. And so your gifts all go toward that. They also go toward our work every week where we have our food bank, typically what was coffees on, where sometimes between 40 and 50 people are coming. And we're thankful for donations that we get from Cobb's Bread, from Procter & Gamble, others that have been coming in. But your donations also help us to be able to help people as every week dozens of people are coming for our assistance, looking and asking us for help. We're also thankful for our work with the Karen. And as we continue to work with them, Deborah, Priscilla, um, and Maria have been working with five to six of their young women. I've been working with five to six of their young men. Uh, Pastor Marcio and Closey have been working with a group of their leaders. And some weeks, like today, I'll be preaching at their service live stream. Some weeks, we've had between 1,000 and 1,400 hits around the world from people that are listening in to have their language uh, translated in front of them. So as I preach in English, as they have no people with credentials able to do this, or Pastor Marcio does, Close has been translating, and people around the world are listening. And so it's not only blessing the people in Hamilton, but people across our nation, into the States, back into Miramar, and into Thailand as well. And so we're so thankful for your gifts and encourage you to continue to be faithful in honoring God with the wealth he's granted you. You know the means you can do that. There's a variety of them here. You can write a check and drop it off or mail it to the church. You can do e-transfer, sign up for direct deposit. But it also helps us keep the lights on and pay the bills of this building. So thank you for your faithfulness. I would encourage you, even through this time, to continue to trust God. Trust him. The first thing we should do with any amount of money we ever get is carve a portion aside and say, this belongs to the Lord. It's the first fruit. This is God's. God has given me this, and I bless him back with it. And then secondly, you know we've been meeting on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Deanna highlighted that. There's four time slots for us to gather to prayer. And I would encourage you to join us. I gathered for two of those time slots this week. It was great to see people. It was wonderful to be able to pray together. It was wonderful to be able to come in the presence of the Lord together. And we would encourage you over the next number of weeks to carve out times to gather to prayer, to to pray. Our, Our plan had been on Tuesdays to host these prayer gatherings live here. And as we're unable to do that now, we're encouraging you uh, to join us in, in terms of as one big group on Tuesdays, we're encouraging you to join in these four groups. Twice on Tuesdays, twice on Thursdays, 
so that each of the elders are leading one of these. You can join up. We can have nine others join one of the elders. So we'd encourage you to come and join us on Tuesdays or Thursdays at 7 or 8.30 so that we can be praying together and seeking God's face. We're still praying for God to pray down some of the debt we own in this building. We're praying that God will mightily be at work in the lives of people. When we move live, I know of at least four baptisms now that we're going to be able to have in the next several weeks. We long for God to save, but we can't do that. And so we want to come before him and pray, God, would you provide? God, would you save? God, would you move? God, would you move in our lives? God, would you change us? And so we encourage you to join us to pray on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Would you pray with me now? We now, oh God, take our attention and turn it to your word, which is rich and living and active. And we ask your blessing on us as we look at it now. In Christ's name, amen. It's easy to doubt. It's easy to doubt. It's easy to have believed at some point in your life that God is calling you to something, and then at another point to doubt that. Sometimes that doubt can occur within a matter of weeks, sometimes within a matter of years. Sometimes our own sinful nature will cast that doubt. Sometimes others around us will help put the seed of doubt into us. Sometimes our, the enemy, Satan himself, will cast seeds of doubt. Sometimes the circumstances in which we find ourselves in will create doubt. And it's easy to doubt and that's where we find Abram and Sarai right now in this encounter in the book of Genesis. If you have your Bible, Genesis 16, I'm going to look at two and a half chapters of Scripture today, so jump in with me. Genesis 16, I'll stutter step through the passages offering comments as we walk through them. But now Sarai, Abram's wife, was, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar, and so she came up with this idea. So we have here this comment that Sarai has no children. The promise, the covenant that God gave them is now well over a decade old, and there's no kids. There's no kids. And so Sarai is like, well, we've got to take matters into our own hands. And when they were in Egypt, likely this is where they acquired Hagar. And so Hagar is part of Abram's lie even back then. Hagar is with them now here in uh, in Cana, and as they're there, as part of their family, Sarah has an idea. Now, one of the things that's important to remember is the survival of your family line was critical. Abram and Sarah have left their families, they're in a new land, in a new place, and if Abram is not granted an heir, there is no continuance of his family line. It just ends. I mean, I even hear that today occasionally when I've been with families and like, you know, we're praying for a boy. Because even in our culture, it's often the boys that carry on the family name. The boys keep the family name, even to today. That's how we do it. And so here we have Sarai who's saying, man, we need to take matters into our own hands. Something along the way has gone awry. Maybe God isn't as powerful as we thought. Maybe he's unable to keep his promise. So let's alter the plan. So she says this, the Lord, verse 2, has kept me from having children. So go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, we are stunned by this today. It's something that, that we hear and go, what? But this was very common practice in their day. In fact, some of the other 
cultures living in that day would have written within their marriage covenants and contracts that if your wife could not bear you a child within two years, that you were to sleep with one of your uh, maidservants so that your family line could continue through them. So you kind of had two years to be able to produce a child, and then after that, uh, in the Mesopotamian area, it was then one of the maidservants that you were to sleep with, and you were to continue your line through them. And so this is a very common practice in that day. But this wasn't God's plan. In fact, I want you to note in this, she actually blames God. The Lord has kept me from having children. Sarai puts the full blame of her inability to have children on God. And so she says, here's the plan, go sleep with my slave. So Abram agrees to what Sarai says. And after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, he took, his wife took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to be her husband, uh, gave her, sorry, to her husband to be his wife. Note that. That's the language there. Hagar, in essence, becomes Abram's wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. Now, the idea of this isn't that this was a one-time thing. It's not like the first time, although it could have been, Abram slept with Hagar, they had a child, or she conceived. It's the idea because he takes her as wife, takes her as part of his family, the idea here is that they are not having relations like he and Sarai are. So when she, that's Hagar, knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress, that's Sarai. So then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now she knows she is pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. And see, this is the mess that taking things into our own matters, into our own hands, makes. Sarai is now furious. Abram, look what you've done. And Abram's probably like, what, wait, this was your idea. Abram, look what you've done. And she's now pregnant and she despises me. Because even though she's still a slave, she's a slave who's now a part of the family line. And she's pregnant. And you know what it's like when a couple gets pregnant. Abram's never been a dad. He's excited. He's talking to Hagar about it. They're dreaming about what their child will be like. They're having these conversations. And Sarai's left out. And as Abram and Hagar now have this bond that's been created as she's pregnant with his child, it's a bond that Sarai and Abram don't have. And Hagar in that becomes conceited. And she begins to despise Sarai. I mean, the text doesn't tell us in what way. Maybe she's saying things like, who's the real wife? Who do you think Abram will really favor? Who's going to carry on his family line? Who's going to be at dinner tonight? And all of a sudden, you have this mess. You have this mess. Because whenever we take things into our own hands and we stop trusting God, and whether it's with our finances, whether it's the raising of our children, whether it's with our vocation, whenever we start to take things into our own hands and say, I got this, we can only ever create mess. Instead of blaming God, Sarai should have been trusting God. Instead of being upset with him, she should have thrown herself at his feet. But she doesn't. Well, Abram says, the slave is in your hands. Do with her whatever you want, or whatever you think is best. 
And then Sarai mistreated Hagar, and she fled from her. The term here that she mistreated Hagar is the same term that's used when it's prophesied that the Israelites will be mistreated by the Egyptians in slavery for 400 years. So then you have Hagar has run. She's found by the angel of the Lord in a spring desert, uh, near, near a spring, sorry, in the desert. And she comes to her, the angel of the Lord uh, comes to her and says, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where are you going? Where have you come from? And, and as you can look at this geographically, she's heading back to Egypt. She's heading back to where she came from. But she does answer the angel. She says, I'm running away from my mistress. I'm being mistreated. Well, the angel of the Lord tells her, go back and submit to her. And then he offers her a promise. I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. So he says to her, I want you to go back. And as you go back, I want you to submit. She doesn't, the, the angel sorry, doesn't say to her, I want you to go back and be Abram's wife. I want you to go back and be Sarai's servant. And then offers a promise that Hagar can cling to. The child you're carrying, his descendants, will become numerous, too numerous to count. Verse 11, the angel also said to her, you are now pregnant, you will give birth to a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will live in hostility toward all of his brothers. She gave uh, this name, sorry, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. Um, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. So Hagar bore Abram a son. Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. He was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So God not only grants Hagar a promise that you will have a son whose descendants will be too numerous to count, but God also says to Hagar, or the angel of the Lord, whom identifies, or is identified here as the Lord, also says to Hagar um, in, in this encounter that you're going to name your son Ishmael, which means the Lord has heard. And two things happen here. Ishmael means the Lord has heard. Sarai says, or, sorry, Hagar says, I have seen the Lord. And so she hears and sees from God. God meets Hagar in her misery and mistreatment. And now when she goes back to serve in that household, though it's still going to be difficult, though it's still going to be challenging. I mean, imagine this, this, this now marriage where you have both Hagar and Sarai involved. And soon Ishmael is going to be born. And Ishmael isn't going to just be with Hagar in the tent. Ishmael's going to be at dinner with his dad, maybe every night. So every night, Sarai is going to remember, she took things into her own hand, and this is the result. And every night, Hagar is going to remember, and the Lord heard me. And the Lord heard me. And the Lord heard me. Every time she'll speak her son's name, the Lord heard me. The Lord met me. And the Lord has seen me. In fact, I have seen the one who sees me. Now we're told he's going to be a wild man. And that everyone's hand or his hand will be against everyone. And there will be hostility 
in his life. So the text continues, and years passed. Ishmael is now 13 years old. So another 13 years has passed. So just imagine, 13 years of dinners, 13 years of Abram teaching his son Ishmael the trade, because that is what Ishmael is. Ishmael is Abram's son and treated as such. Sarai watching this for 13 years. It would cast a great deal of doubt, wouldn't it? When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. That is the name of God, El Shaddai. First time it shows up here in Genesis. Often it's a hard name for God to translate. And it can actually mean God of the Most High or or God of the high mountain. I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. He says to Abram, I want you to be faithful and I want you to be blameless. And Abram has not done very well at either of those so far. And then I will make my covenant between me and you and I will greatly increase your numbers. So Abram falls face down. As for me, this is my covenant with you, God says. You will be the father of many nations. You will no longer be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful, and I will make nations of you. Kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants um, after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole of Canaan will now reside as a foreigner. Where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their king. In this moment, in Genesis chapter 17, God is going to rename Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah. Now, in terms of their names, this is not a significant change in the meaning of their names. God doesn't alter what their names mean significantly by adding from Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. Sarai to Sarah still means princess. Abram, Abram, you may be able to, I mean, it depends on how you read this, but be able to add to it how how it's the adding of nations. But even that, I would question. So with that said, I think that the reason God is renaming them isn't to alter their meaning of names as much as it's to show his authority and the significance of who he is to them. God is saying, I am the authoritative one, and I have authority even over you. He's showing his authority over over them. It's one of the significance of naming. In this moment, when God is talking about the covenant, he adds something new to it. He talks about how kings will come from Abraham and Sarah. He talks about how now there'll be kings coming. And he says to Abram, I'm the God who's going to keep my covenant with you. And then God offers him a sign. And it's interesting that the sign that God offers Abraham is connected to the organ that will produce the seed of which Abraham needs. Because God gives no explanation as to why circumcision. All we have is speculation. Why circumcision? We just don't know. So God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants, and, your, and for the generations to come. And this is the covenant uh, that you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are going to keep. Every male among you will be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision. It will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male 
among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring, whether they're born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So why circumcision? Let me give four possible reasons. One, Israel was the only nation distinctly where everyone had to be circumcised. Now, you can find in writings that are as old as these writings, you can find writings where other nations also practiced circumcision, but it wasn't required. It's required in Israel. It's, it's distinct. Um, two, it says if you're going to become a Jew, if you're going to be a Jew, you're taking it serious. The right to enter, to become a follower of Jehovah God, today is what? Baptism. Then was circumcision. The right here to be a follower of God is circumcision. And so circumcision is the sign of that covenant, like baptism is the sign of the covenant today. And back then, as circumcision was the sign of the covenant for males who represented the family clan at the eighth day, if a foreigner came in and they were bought in and they wanted to be a part of the Jewish family or custom and culture, if a person was choosing to do it, if they were bought in, they had to do it. If they were choosing to do it, they had to be circumcised. That meant if you were a 44-year-old male and you wanted to be Jewish, you were pretty serious about it. It wasn't just a group of classes which were part of it to understand Jewish custom and culture. You also went through a medical procedure. And at 44 years of age, if you're going to be circumcised because you're going to be Jewish, you're pretty serious. Number three, it was an act of obedience. It was simply an act of obedience. God said to do it, and they did it. Number four, and this is just my speculation but I throw this out there. It's a bloody procedure that is the cutting off of foreskin. And so it reminds us of this image through Scripture as circumcision later on is picked up. And it talks about the circumcision of the heart in the New Testament that we are to cut off, continually cut sin out of our life, cut sin off of our life. It's just that reminiscent of the fact that there will be blood and that blood will have to be shed as part of the sign. Of course, we know through the Old Testament that becomes then the blood of lambs and bulls and goats. That can never take away sin. Pointing to the blood of the sacrificial lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is able to cover all of our sin. And it includes the cutting off, the continual cutting off of sin out of our lives. So Abraham obeys. They do it. Verse 15, God says to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, she is no longer to be called Sarai, but now Sarah, and I will bless her, and surely I will give uh, you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of the nations. Kings and peoples will come for her. <coughs> Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Abraham doubts. I mean, some people say here because God doesn't, doesn't in, in any way 
um, directly talk to Abraham about his doubt, the way he'll talk to Sarah in chapter 18 about her doubt, that maybe this isn't doubt, maybe it's just surprise. But it looks like doubt to me. When Abraham's saying, hey God, you know, after he laughs, what about Ishmael? God, I really think that Ishmael could be part of your plan. I mean, he's 13, he's a strapping young man. What about Ishmael? God says to him in his response, yes, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. God grants him the name right here. And I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant for you and your descendants after him. But as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will also bless him. I will make him fruitful. I will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. When he finished speaking with Abraham, God went up with him. And then Abraham called all the men together from his household, starting with him and Ishmael, and said, Guys, God's told us we're about to all go through a procedure. And they all did. Could you imagine that day? I can't even comprehend it. And it actually, it, it speaks to how Abraham and Ishmael were both circumcised on the same day. Abraham at 99, Ishmael at 13. It doesn't say that all the men were circumcised on the same day because Abraham had a massive, massive, massive uh, uh, household now. So it may have taken a couple of days to get through all of the men. And I couldn't even imagine being one of the men in Abraham's family on that day being like, what's going on? And God told him to do what? And are we sure he heard right? Are we sure this is what's happening? But Abraham follows God. He believes, he obeys, and he follows. And then chapter 18. So then the Lord appears to Abraham near the trees, or the great trees of Mamre. Uh, he was sitting at the entrance of the tent at the heat of the day. Abraham looks up and he sees three men standing there. When he sees them, he hurries from the entrance to the tent to meet them, he bows low to the ground. He says to them, if I found favor in your eyes, don't pass me by. He brings them water. He offers to wash their feet. And then he gathers food. He calls to Sarah and he says, quick, go and get three sefs of the finest flour. Now, this is very interesting. That measurement of flour would have been enough. And it's being made from wheat, not barley. Meaning, in those days that, that are offering a finer feast, that would have meant that they're feeding more than just the five or six of them of Ishmael was there. This is a bit of a feast. This would have been enough, some people would say, to cook between 40 and 60 loaves of bread. So Abraham may have been offering for these uh, people a feast for a larger portion of his household. Now, when we say loaves of bread, they're smaller loaves. They're not the loaves we're thinking of. They're more like larger dinner buns. But there's still a lot of them being prepared, more than that number of people can eat. So they go, they do that. They prepare. He goes to his servants and tell them um, to take a tender calf and, and, and to kill it and to prepare it for them. And then they begin to prepare everything while these men are sitting under the tree. And while they're there, they say to Abram, where is Sarah? There, she, he says, in the tent. One of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. So we know that this encounter is probably very close to the last encounter. Like we're talking within weeks. Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abram and Sarah were already very old. Sarah was well past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed and she thought to herself, 
after I'm worn out and old, is this really the pleasure I'll have? The Lord, identified here as God, the Lord said to Abram, Yahweh said to Abram, Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, well, I really have a child. Am I really now too old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I'll return to you at the appointed time next year. Sarah will have a son. She was afraid, so she lied and she said, I did not laugh. But God said, yes, you did. Yes, you did laugh. Four things I conclude here quickly. The first is this. God's plan is unstoppable. Is that not good news? God's plan is unstoppable. Sin will not thwart God's plan. God hates sin. But our sin will not throw God's plan off. God will still do what God wants to do. God's plan is bigger than our sin. God's plan is bigger than our failings. God's plan is bigger than the circumstances we find ourselves in. Now, of course, God longs for us to walk in obedience. He calls Abraham to do so. He says to Abraham, be faithful and be blameless. But even when, a when Abraham falters in those areas, God is still able to accomplish all that he has said he will do because he is God. And the circumstances of this world will not thwart him. That's why he can call out, where are the other gods in Isaiah? If they are there, let them show themselves. That's why Elijah on the top of Mount Carmel can say to the prophets of Baal, maybe your God's asleep, maybe he can't hear you. And he knows confidently he can call out to his God for answer. God's plan cannot be thwarted. He is moving through history and what he has promised and what he has said will happen, will happen and will come to fulfillment. Jesus Christ will return. Is that not good news? Regardless of how awful our world around us looks, regardless of how dark our time is. I mean, even this week, I was speaking to a lawyer about some of the darkness of our day, about some of the bills that are being passed even in our nation. Come, Lord Jesus, come. His promises will be fulfilled. Secondly, taking matters into your own hands only makes things worse. Well, you know, we'll pay our bills and not honor God with our wealth. We'll do this with whatever it is. We'll just figure this out. Well, I know God's asking us to do that, but we just don't have the time right now. We just don't, I don't. Taking matters into our own hands, following our own way, only makes things worse. It's why in Proverbs, God says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Never lean on your own understanding. In every way, in all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make your path straight. I mean, every day for 13 years before she was pregnant, maybe 14, 13 and a half, Ishmael is showing up at the family gathering, showing up at the family table. And Abram's like, this is my boy. He even does it with God, right? What about my son Ishmael? This is my boy. I'm his dad. And every day Sarah was reminded that taking things matters into her own hands only leads to a mess. Number three, God is redeeming a people for himself. Jesse, you guys can come up. God is redeeming a people for himself. This is great news. God granted Abram covenant in all of the mess when we rebelled against God in the garden. 
And then we rebelled against God beyond the garden, right? In Tower of Babel, flood, right? With Noah, days of Noah. We continue to rebel against God. And God says, I'm calling someone. I'm calling Abram. I'm going to covenant with Abram. And you can trace God's covenant through the seed of Abraham, through generations to the person of Christ. And God's covenant lasts to this day. Jesus, when he's leaving, right, at the Great Commission, it's bookended. It's beautifully bookended, the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. Every single ounce of authority anywhere in this universe belongs to him. And he is with us always to the very end of the age. Praise his name. He's redeeming a people. He's saving a people from every tribe, from every language, from every culture. From every nation, he's saving people from all over because God loves to redeem. And lastly, God specializes in the impossible. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for him? The answer is no. The God who created the heavens and earth, who told the seas where they would go, the land where it would appear, the mountains where they would grow, the God who called everything into existence, the one who parted the Red Sea, who called fire down from heaven, who shut the mouths of the lions, who allowed three men to enter into a fiery furnace and come out not even smelling like smoke. The God who would cloak his deity with humanity and show up and be here and die for our sin and three days later, because he'd never sinned, be raised to life again as King of kings and Lord of lords. Nothing, nothing anywhere in this world in any way is too great for him. Nothing is impossible for God. He is God. So God, we need you to grant us faith and remove our doubt and show yourself to be the faithful one. Amen?